All right, as I say, we were going to say a little bit more about Omar Sharif, epic actor who appeared in a couple of epic films, Lawrence of Arabia and Dr. Zhivago, wherein he had the lead role. That piece of music was Laura's Theme, which I, I think won an Oscar. And if it didn't, it should have. Omar Sharif was an international star in the 1960s, based pretty much on three films. His blazing uh, first appearance in Lawrence of Arabia, his lead in Dr. Zhivago, and playing opposite Barbara Streisand in 1968's Funny Girl. But note of the LA Times obituary is international appeal also meant he had to navigate the political minefield of the Middle East. By 1968, a controversy broke out of, about his role as the heartbreaker Nikki Arnstein in Funny Girl. His on-screen kiss with his Jewish co-star, Barbara Streisand, came less than a year after the 1967 Arab-Israeli War, and the resulting uproar on both sides nearly cost him his Egyptian citizenship. Omar Sharif actually wasn't Egyptian per se at all. He was born in Alexandria to Greek Lebanese parents. His name was Mitchell Dimitri Shaloub. As for his name change, he chose Omar from General Omar Bradley and Sharif because he said he thought it would be easy for Westerners to pronounce. Apparently after his appearance in Dr. Shivago, he got something like 3,000 marriage proposals. And supposedly, at some point around that time, a woman forced him at gunpoint to have sex with her. He did make a critical comeback in 2003, the French film Monsieur Ibrahim. He played a Muslim Turkish shopkeeper who befriends a young Jewish boy. It won him France's equivalent of the Oscar. In his native city of Alexandria, his passing last week drew recollections of his influence. The Times quoted an Ahmed Sarwar, an Alexandrian physician in his late 60s, as recalling a sense of national pride when Omar Sharif vaulted in international fame in the 1960s. Sarwar said, before that, no one had thought of Egypt in this way as having something other than camels and the pyramids to offer the world. Omar Sharif, he cut quite a figure. And I think I'm reminded I need to see Dr. Shivago again sometime soon. By the way, there's apparently some political intrigue that underlies Boris Pasternak's book, Dr. Shivago. Apparently the CIA saw to it that it got published and, you know, because the Russian government was against it for its unfavorable portrayal of the Bolsheviks, etc. Well, it became a political football. And that'd be a great thing to talk about if I'd researched it a little bit better, but I haven't, so we're going to have to pass on that, but eh, maybe we'll come back to it. Let's instead go into space and say a few things about what's going on out at the edge of the uh, solar system. We do want to note that the Guardian newspaper has been quoted on this program over the years on many an occasion because it, well, it, it just tends to take a little bit different stance than the mainstream media, and sometimes that's a very good thing. But the Guardian newspaper's uh, recent uh, claim, at least in quoting from the figure of Chandra Wickram Singhahi, director of the Buckingham Center for Astrobiology, that Comet 67P may harbor life as reported in The Guardian. Well, they evidently had to go to another one of their science consultants, Stuart Clark, to talk about that. And evidently, Chandra Wickram Singhahi has uh, really championed this idea of panspermia, the idea that life is distributed throughout the universe by comets and other celestial wanderers. He's made headlines before with such claims as the fact that the SARS virus came from outer space. To suffice it to say that cooler heads have looked at his claims about Comet 67P and said, well, um, yeah, probably not. 
that came out of New Scientist. Another piece that was a New Scientist last month is worthy of a word or two. Everyone, of course, is focused in on the fact that the New Horizons mission finally got to Pluto after all these years of traveling in space. But the month before, some clever astronomers had calculated that the planet Pluto was going to occult or move in front of a star in the constellation Sagittarius, and that the shadow of the event would pass across the Earth. They calculated to the best of their ability where that shadow would be and then sent up a 747 with a telescope on board to see if they could capture it, because as the star winks out, the tenuous atmosphere of Pluto would give up some of its secrets. A piece by Govert Schilling accompanied that flight and wrote about how they were worried that they, you know, they might be too far to the north or too far to the south, but actually they hit a bullseye on the path of Pluto's shadow across the Earth and were able to observe the dimming of the light of the star as it passed through Pluto's very thin atmosphere. They apparently hit a bullseye on this mission because midway through it, there was kind of a flash as, I guess, a ring of light uh, appeared around the circumference of the planet Pluto. This should supplement rather nicely the information coming back from the New Horizons, which apparently, as these missions often do, surprise everybody with the fact that what we assumed must be going on out there was just dead wrong. The closest model we had to Pluto was the Neptunian moon Triton, which is about the same size as Pluto. but I think it's bigger. Triton shocked scientists back in 1989 when, after the Voyager 2 flyby, the pictures revealed that there were actually geysers of nitrogen erupting on the surface of Triton, shooting far up, hundreds of miles, I think, up above the surface of, of the moon, basically snowing back down on it and, and altering the surface. Well, something is altering the surface of Pluto but not quite in the way of Triton. There's apparently here and there large mountains the size of the Rockies, which are made not of rock, but of ice. And everywhere you look on the planet's surface, um, well, there's not a whole lot of craters, which tells you that it's being resurfaced. Unlike our moon, who's, uh, you know, which preserves every blast of probably the last four, in, four billion years on the surface, well, there's just, there's just not a lot of craters on Pluto. Something is causing it to heat up and, you know, move, move mass around, and they can't figure out what that source of heat would be. Unlike the moons of other planets, like Triton or the, the giant moons around um, Jupiter, there's no obvious source of heat that could be molding Pluto. Now, in the case of, you know, say the moons around Jupiter, it's the huge tidal pull on these moons as they sort of flex in and out. They go a little bit further out, a little bit closer in, and in doing so, well, it just changes the interior of the planet by how it's pulling on it. I don't know how to explain it, but uh, better than that. But uh, Pluto has a very sizable moon, Charon or Sharon, depending on how you want to pronounce it. They're still debating over that. The guy that discovered it named it after his wife, whose name was Sharon, even though it's named after the Greek god Charon. He says, you should pronounce it Sharon, which I think is kind of bogus. But the thing about this sizable moon is that they're locked. The same surface of Pluto faces the same surface on Charon when it orbits around. So there's not this, you don't get the flexing you would, well, like on here on Earth, where we're not tidally locked with our own moon. So what the hell is doing this? Nobody knows. It's possible, of course, that, you know, radioactive elements inside Pluto could be providing some source of heat as it does here on Earth. An awful lot of the, you know, 
hot rock that exists down below the cool surface of our planet. Well, some of that heat is from what was trapped when we formed four billion years ago and has not yet radiated away. And a lot of the rest of it is from the decay of radioactive elements inside the planet. Could that be what's going on at Pluto? Well, sure, it could be. Nobody knows. Research will continue. I'm really keen to see these, the, the rest of these high-resolution photographs from Pluto. And, and, and its moon, Charon, uh, apparently has this large valley in the center of it, which is reminiscent of what you see on Mars. I mean, some really strange stuff is going on out there at the edge of the solar system. And it is really a crack-up that, you know, when it comes to this sort of uh, uh, astronomy, or as in all areas of science, when you actually go and take a look at something, you find out that your, your theories are, are generally uh, not correct. So all those ancient Greeks thought they were going to sit down and figure out how the world worked by reasoning their way through it. Well, that's just not how you do things. Well, at least it's not how you do things if you don't want to wind up like Greece. Oh, I know, that's such a cheap shot. But, you know, I follow all these news stories about how, oh, it's terrible, the Greeks are going to have to, like, deal with these austerity measures. Yeah, like, like, like actually paying taxes. Yeah, like not having your children inherit your pensions. Yeah, that stuff's going to be mighty rough on the Greeks. Good Lord, they may have to go to work. <laughs> Calling Jeb Bush. Now, in one of our comedy relief stories of the week, we, we have to note the, the shaming of the entire government of Mexico for its rampant corruption. Well, in this case, due to the fact that El Chapo Guzman escaped from a high-security prison through a mile-long tunnel. Now, there are some who speculate that perhaps some corrupt officials were in, involved in this matter. We have to admit, could be. After all, when you pick the exact spot inside the prison where there are no surveillance cameras and you can dig a hole up into the shower area, that's kind of remarkable. And the fact that the five-foot-high tunnel turns out to be a sophisticated bit of engineering. It had electric lights, ventilation system, and a motorbike on rails used to haul out the dirt and construction materials. In terms of hauling away dirt, the estimates were they had to use at least 100 truckloads. Writing about this in Mexico, La Jornada said, This has shattered the credibility of Mexican institutions. Building the tunnel was a monumental project and necessarily required a vast intelligence operation, including access to local governments and prison authorities who could supply the Altiplano prison's floor plans. How many officials must have been bribed? Interior Minister Miguel Angel Osorio Chong has begun a purge, firing the director of the Altiplano as well as the head of Mexico's prison system and ordering an investigation into all prison employees. But he should cast a wider net, said the magazine. This national embarrassment proves the supreme indolence and serious decay rampant in government agencies. Well, corruption in the Mexican government isn't exactly news. But writing in Il Financiero, a Luis Carlos Ugalde said, Guzman has cost us a great deal of American goodwill. In recent weeks, Mexico had a great run in U.S. public debate. Republican presidential hopeful Donald Trump drew scorn from American politicians, media, and businesses from his racist comments that Mexico was utterly corrupt and full of dangerous criminals. But now Trump is crowing, told you so. President Peña Nieto once said that letting Guzman escape a second time would be unforgivable. Well, the Americans certainly won't forgive it, and neither should the Mexicans. 
Because we should note as an addendum that in turn, Guzman has now threatened Donald Trump. Personally, we'd like to see Donald Trump mix it up with El Chapo. And if there's some way we could just work Raymond Shrimp Boy Chow into the story, that would really make our week here at Radio Parallax. All right, in the two minutes I got left, we can talk about workplace spying and how your phone is betraying you. But I think we'll save that for next week's show. And instead, talk about the ongoing fist fight between the Sacramento News and Review and Sacramento's Mayor Kevin Johnson. I guess that's appropriate. We've been talking about political corruption in, in what has got to be maybe a new low for the, the dirty politics that takes place here in our state capital. Turns out the Sacramento chapter of the NAACP sent out a press release last week accusing the Sacramento News and Review of racism with its coverage of Kevin Johnson. The release said the NAACP is outraged at the racist SNNR cartoon lampooning Mayor Johnson. Caricaturing images of the mayor with a crazed and violent look reinforces what many believe is the persona of many African-American males. The NAACP is demanding that the SNNR's editorial board reprimand the staff responsible for the illustration. The illustration shows Johnson with sweat on his forehead, his eyes wide, his mouth agape, staring down at the Sacramento News and Review. It says, KJ sues SNNR. Now it's true the illustration does put a startled look on the face of the mayor, but I don't see how you can compare this to caricaturing images of African-American males. This really isn't comparable to like the 1930s Hollywood uh, stereotypes where, you know, the sort of things where the, the black actor would let out a feet, do your stuff, and then disappear. The News and Review issued a statement after the NAACP release that said the illustrations of Mayor Kevin Johnson in the July 9th issue depict him as sweaty and nervous while reading about his lawsuit against the paper and allegations of email misuse. These illustrations are based on an actual photo of the mayor. We refute the NAACP's assertion that the illustrations are in any way racist, violent, or perpetuating negative stereotypes, or that our coverage of the mayor is racially biased. Such accusations are unfounded and without merit. The SNNR has a 26-year history of supporting the NAACP's mission. We look forward to continuing and strengthening that support in the future. And in this, Radio Parallax backs the paper 100%. This is playing the race card, to quote from Robert Shapiro, and playing it off the bottom of the deck. And we encourage the paper to continue to expose the monkey business that's going on here in the halls of government. And that about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan. Thanks to our old pal, Will Durst. Such a, such a pleasure to be able to bring him to you. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time.